0: Good afternoon, I'm Loreto Rojas.
1: And I'm Cal Winslow.
0: Today, we continue our series in recognition of Hispanic Heritage Month. We'll present four programs in all, each considering an important issue in the Latinx community and beyond.
1: And this afternoon's guest is Alvaro uh, Huerta, an associate professor in urban and uh, region planning and ethnic and women's studies at Cal State Polytechnic University in Pomona.
0: Professor Huerta reaches the intersecting domains of urban planning, Chicano, Chicana, Latina, Latino studies, immigration, religion, social movements, social networks, and the informal economy. Huerta is author of the award-winning book, latina Latino Immigrant Communities in the Xenophobic Era, of Trump and beyond. This book was written or published in 2019.
1: And he's received numerous awards for his social, racial justice and civic engagement, such as the Association of Collegiate Schools of Planning, their, their 2016 Edward Blakely Award, and the American Planning Association's 2011 National Planning Leadership Award.
0: Uh, Alvaro was born in the U.S., Uh, he was raised in the Mexican Colonia, Colonia Libertad in Tijuana, Baja California, And, and uh, American Barrio, uh, Ramona Gardens Public Housing Project, or also known as the Big Hazard Project in East Los Angeles. As a first generation elementary school, high school, and university graduate, he holds a PhD in city and regional planning from UC Berkeley, uh, one of the first Chicanos to do so. He also holds an MA in urban planning and a BA in, in history from UCLA.
1: So welcome back again. Uh, Very welcome indeed. Um, Can we call you Alvaro? Oh, yes, yes, please do so. Yes, And um, well, let's just finish out your uh, CV here uh, with one more thing. We see you've just been appointed a fellow in religion and public life at the Harvard Divinity School. So congratulations, and can you tell us a bit what, what's up there?
2: Well, thank you very much to both of you. This is a great program. I'm very excited to be with y'all. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm currently at Harvard and I'm, I'm teaching and mentoring graduate students at the Harvard Divinity School, uh, focusing on issues that have to do with, with religion, social movements, immigration, uh, and community organizing in Latino and Latina uh, communities.
0: So, Alvaro, you're not using the Latinx, so present yeah. everywhere. You know, I hesitate to use Latinx because it's hard to translate right. into Spanish. Is, do you think it's something more like generational or?
2: Yes, I think so. Um, in the 1950s, uh, the, the Mexican-Americans that that uh, served in the war, uh, Many of them were conservative. So their kids in the, in the 60s started to rebel against them. Uh, so they were saying, no, we're not Mexican-Americans, we're, we're Chicanos or Chicanas. So I see this Latinx as a generational um, question where each generation uh, proclaims their own identity. Uh, what, I, what I do with, with young people, I mean, I have a son who's, who's a senior at uh, Amherst College name is Joaquin, is, uh, and he's at that generation. He's 22 years old. I, I see a lot of people that are older, they, they, they make negative comments to, to the youth that use that term, and I don't believe in that. Uh, I, I think every, every generation should determine their own identities and their own future. So if someone wants to call themselves Latinx or Chicano I think that's fantastic. Uh, for me, it's just it's a question of uh, I'm more used to using those terms that I use now, uh, and that ev- evolved because at first it was Latino. I would just say Chicano, and then I would say Latin. I wouldn't I wouldn't include Latina or, or Chicana. So I, I, I evolved myself to to make sure to include not just the male because uh, as you know, what like in Spanish, it's you you say los abuelos, and los abuelos is it includes both the abuela and the abuelo, but you say mis abuelos. So and, and so I understand that in the sexist nature of language. Uh, but I see more that X that as a as generational issue and I support it. Um, but because I'm not of that generation, I just don't use it. Maybe later on, you know, <laughs> I'll adopt it. But for now, I, I support what young people do and, and others that, that embrace it as well.
1: Uh, one more thing, maybe before we get into the um, heart of this interview, I see we're not the first radio program to host you. You've done others, I guess, including the TED Hour, uh, uh, it says here, and that your talks I've seen uh, are, are about those at the bottom. I wondered if you could uh, explain that, uh, both in terms of of uh, how you feel about being on the radio and two, about talking about those on the bottom.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm very comfortable. Uh, I've been a public figure for many years. Uh, I have two TEDx talks uh, and I'm always open and willing to talk to people at, at all levels, whether it's a juvenile hall, whether it's a university, whether it's a radio or podcast. Uh, I feel any program that is disseminating good information to help the public good. is, is something that, that I support like both of you who are doing great work and, and, and helping communities. Uh, for me, someone asked me that question before and I, what, what I tell them is, I, I once said that I started at the bottom. Uh, it's kind of like Drake when he says, started from the bottom, now I'm at the top. <laughs> uh, that rap song. I, I, and people say, well, why do you say that? Why do you say you started at the bottom? And I tell them, I go, well, when you grew up in a slum, like I did in, in Tijuana, where there was no running water. Actually, I don't even like the word slum because the people that live there are beautiful and very uh, industrious and they, they build their own homes and they're, they're amazing people. But in terms of like the conditions were slum conditions. You know, uh, This is the first four years of my life, even though I was born here in the United States. Uh, I'm like what Republicans call an anchor baby. Uh, so when you when you start off in abject poverty, the water is contaminated. There, there's no uh, toilet in the house. It's outside, dirt roads. Uh, like you see the images of, of like in India, things of that nature. This is this is the people. This is kind of where I come from. I'm not at the severe poverty in, in India. That it's this different level. The poverty in India is a little more severe than Mexico. Uh, And then coming to being raised in housing projects in East LA where it's not just about uh, poverty, but also violence, like literally constantly worrying about uh, being assaulted or being shot or being killed. And I'm not even talking about the gang members, I'm talking about the police. (laughs) So the, the, the violence. So when a lot of times when you start at the bottom and when you're there, and what I tell people is like, when you're poor, and Mexican, and everybody else is poor Mexican, you don't even know that you're poor Mexican, you know, because you think that's normal. You know, like when I I was growing up in the projects, like 99% of the, like 100% of the residents were Mexican origin, and we had railroad tracks, we had freeways, factories, and when I went to UCLA in 1985, I was 17 years old uh, as a math major, I didn't realize how beautiful, like places can be I, I didn't know that they were like how, how how there were communities without the with without these things you know that, that were harmful and and then i started to realize that the people who lived in different places where having helicopters roam around your home you know was not common so that was like a culture shock to me uh, most people have culture shocks when they go to university because they're the first ones but for me, it was different. It wasn't just about your first one. It was like, you're going to places where where you don't see that. And then, then, then you realize like, oh my God, I, I grew up poor. Because I didn't realize, I wasn't thinking that I grew up poor because everybody else was poor.
0: Right, you know, yeah. So. You're you reminding me when I came to the States and I couldn't believe that almost any um, <clears throat> faucet I will open will have hot water. I was like, what? <laughs> I had water everywhere I mean water already was like a commodity so yeah
2: yeah now what I went to me to when my grandma died and my abuelita died in Michoacán I went to morelia and, and you take a shower there's a bucket of water there and then all of a sudden the, the water's the water turns off and you're like where's the water but there's a bucket you're supposed to use that bucket and I didn't know you know it, it's things that we that those of us who were raised here because I was predominantly raised here even though I spent four years in Tijuana, we take for granted that that not everybody, not everybody lives in a home or an apartment where there's running water or there's hot water, cold water.
0: So Alvaro, uh, you know, with this uh, introduction of your background and uh, perhaps a little bit of my own, I wanted to ask you about uh, housing because, you know, this is one of the, during the pandemic, I think we have, A a friend of mine was saying that uh, she feels that the pandemic has been a huge light that has highlighted all our lives the way they are, particularly uh, essential workers and poor people. And uh, one of the things that we are all seeing everywhere in California, I believe, and many places in the world is that we have having this issue with housing where there is not enough homes for people. So... Uh, your PhD is in, in related to this uh, topic. So I wanted to ask you a little bit to, to talk about how, how, this, how we can justify or, or the, you were describing this place where you grew up. So I hear now people talking about tiny houses. It makes me really upset because it's like an option for the homeless. And, but housing is more than just having a roof over your head, right?
2: Yes, it's very unfortunate uh, in the United States where housing is not a right, it's more of a privilege, uh, and this applies to healthcare as well. So in a a way, having homeless people or having people outside of the market, it benefits uh, those that that own property and and those that manage property uh, because they they can raise the rent. So if everybody has a house or an apartment, then, then the rate, they can't be renting in Los Angeles $2,000 or $2,500 for one bedroom apartment. The only way they can do that if, if there's a shortage. So it's it's not true that we all suffer from it. That's, that's not true. What, what's true is that the majority of us do, but there's a minority that, that don't, that, that benefit uh, and it actually sends a clear message. It's like, if you, want, if you don't want to be homeless, then you're going to be forced to pay $2,500 uh, for an apartment, a two-bedroom or one-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. In California, unfortunately, it's become very uh, antagonistic or inhospitable for, for working class to just rent. Forget about buying. I mean, because it, it looks like in, in Los Angeles, it's about $650,000 the average to buy, to buy a home. I mean, how many people have that type of money to, to be able to buy a home for six hundred fifty thousand? And that's the average. And then you have to think about the down. So let's say they say twenty percent down. So that's that's a lot of money. How many people have you know over a hundred thousand just to put down? Uh, and then you have a good have to have a good credit score. And then you have to have all these these issues that that make it very very difficult for people to to buy a home. And then for our children or our grandchildren. Uh, those of us, those of them that are in high school or college, they're, they're burdened with student loans and student debt. So how many of those coming out of college are going to be in a position where they can buy a home? So some people or a lot of people in the 70s and 80s, they were able to buy a home and by now it's most likely paid off. Uh, and at the time it wasn't, the interest rate was high, but it, the, the, the housing wasn't that expensive. So they they were able to get in the market, and then now to for those same people to get in the market now it's it's impossible because there might be like a fixed income, there might be a social security, or but the house is paid off. Uh, it's, it's the same with college. You know, there was a time where, uh, just even myself when I was at UCLA I started '85, I'm still looking for the the registration card. I Can't, I can't believe I misplaced it. It was like four hundred and seventy-two dollars a quarter or something like that. Uh, to attend UCLA for a quarter. I mean, I got full financial aid, so I didn't have to worry about anything because I was four. Uh, but now if you were to go there, you add a zero to that, you know, just for a quarter. So it's, it's very, very expensive. Uh, so just to enter the job, the, the housing market, you know, coming out with student debt or for any immigrant making minimum wage or below to, to be able to rent at, at the current rate is almost impossible. So what do working class people do? What do immigrants do is in particular? Because that's my specialty. Uh, a lot of them, they, they might have been in a place for many years, so their rent is not that high because of rent control or the, the in California, you could only raise the rent so much. So if you've been in a place for 10, 20 years, they could only raise it so much per year. So you're, you're okay. When you leave, that's the problem because that same house, maybe you're renting Let's say it's a two-bedroom for a thousand. When you leave, now that same apartment is two thousand, three thousand dollars. And I'm not talking about West LA or you know Beverly Hills. Or I'm not talking. I'm talking about wor- wor- regular working-class neighborhoods that, that the, the prices are skyrocketing. So once people leave, th- those to enter that same market is almost impossible. Uh, so what a lot of people do is they they pull the resources. So you'll have. Uh, like a couple of one or two family members or two families living together in the same house. So you'll have the cousin, the uncle, the the parent, like extended family all living in one house or one apartment to be able to afford the rent. Or maybe they bought a house in the 70s or 80s in Inglewood or or another place where Wall Heights, where it wasn't that expensive, but now it is. Uh, So they do have property. But typically what people do, they just pull the resources and, and they're able to especially with Latinos and Latinas, is you would think that the homelessness homelessness rate, it would be higher because of the, the low wages. But the only reason is not is because we have this concept of the family. So we bring people in uh, and in reality, those people are homeless. And, and I can say this, some members of my family where technically they're homeless, but they're not homeless because the, they've been taken in by a family member. Uh, and without that family support, they, they would be on the street. Uh, so so there's kind of like that social safety net that, that exists within the family, within the culture itself, not not the government, you know, not the private sector, which we, we can't rely on because they're more interested in profits. You know.
0: And and what is the government and the private sector? Well, I don't know about the private sector. Maybe they are not doing much, but what is the government doing to address this situation I mean, we, we see that the not only the Latinos, um, but anyway, we are celebrating the Hispanic Heritage Month. So let's talk more Latinos here. Uh, that the Latinos uh, live in these um, um, crowded places. And this is right. why we have been also quite impacted. But what are the policies that are being developed to address these issues? Are there any?
2: Unfortunately, with within the government, they're, they're complicit. And it forces, it forces a lot of, let's just talk about Latinos and Latinas uh, within, within this because it makes more sense for me. What ends up happening, people are forced to leave the state. All right, so, so a lot of Latinos and Latinas, they're going to the south, like Georgia or even Texas, where it's cheaper, it's cheaper to live and there's a demand for for that labor. Uh, and so they can buy a house or rent a house and for the same amount. The only thing they pay less, but but it's, it's just cheaper. California is just it's, it's very expensive. Uh, before it was just LA, uh, San Francisco, but now it's everywhere. Sacramento, where I was born, and the San Joaquin Valley, everywhere is just very, very expensive. The government and a lot of elected officials, whether it's the mayor of Garcetti or the governor, uh, they're all complicit. Uh, they, they talk a good game, but they don't practice it. Uh, they, they, they're they not interested in doing rent control across the board. They're not interested in doing anything that, that guarantees housing. Uh, they actually support and even this is um, it's sad to say that even Latino and Latina politicians that they support policies where there's development uh, from the private sector because that means more taxes. So they'll get more taxes because of that. We see this in Chinatown where a lot of elderly Chinese Americans uh, Chinese immigrants are being displaced uh, because there's a new development that's coming in. Uh, a building is being torn down, or they're building condos, for example. Even though they say, "Okay, we'll give you the first right to to rent, but or to buy," but but if they're on social security, if they're if they're not in a position to buy, you know, they're, they're essentially they're being kicked out. Uh, so they might be given like twenty thousand dollars or something, but how long is that going to last you know, in Los Angeles? You know, uh, not very long. Uh, so you see that the government itself. Pretty much favors development uh, because developers, they give donations, right? So they give, they they donate to their causes, to their re-election campaigns. Unfortunately, poor people don't do that. I'm not poor anymore, but when I was poor, we we don't, we didn't give money to elected officials. We didn't vote in mass. Uh, It's not that we were complacent in terms of voting. It's just that we didn't see government working for us. So we didn't, we didn't see that. So why why were we going to invest in something that there was no, the services that existed were, were poor or were inadequate or even hostile towards us in terms of the, the police and public housing and everything else but i see more elected officials are more interested in, in their own self-interest and getting reelected and and in, uh promoting developments that that support uh, a bigger tax base for them in terms of revenue uh, but but they're 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 not interested in living wages they're not interested in in having affordable housing or or having housing as a right for everybody.
1: Loretta, you were going to ask about COVID.
0: Well, yeah, um I was um making this uh, connection about, you know, people living in these small quarters and and COVID. So I don't know if there is really a, a consideration by the authorities to change these policies that you are describing to us, Álvaro, in order to actually create more a sense of a community, and I'm going here. Also, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier about these tiny houses right. that are sprouting around some places. I know there are not so many, but they try to make them colorful and all that. But it's it's really like another uh, area that is confined. It's like I I see more and more because I grew up in, in Santiago de Chile, which is a huge herb. And during the 80s, you know, late 70s and 80s, the policies were just to take everybody, poor people, and push it to the peripheries, just creating these big areas of poverty and just keeping certain neighborhoods that were more exclusive. Somehow I thought that this would be different here, but even in even in the small towns, it seems that that policy replicates again and again. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we,
2: here we try the, the idea is to, to have uh, poverty be segregated. Uh, and in Latin, throughout Latin America, the rich live in the hills, and, and here in the United States, the opposite, right? So uh, in Latin America, the, the, the poor live in the hills, the, the rich in the cities, and then and it's the opposite here. Uh, But now they're returning to the cities here in the United States. The problem with COVID, it it exposed something that existed, but something that wasn't, that the mainstream media didn't pay attention to. In the case of of Latinos and Latinas, for example, the, the case of overcrowding. So it's actually true and false at the same time that COVID impacts everybody. It's true that we're all impacted because of COVID because rich people die as well or con- get contracted and die. But what's false is that that we're all impacted equally. That's not true. So what happens when, when Cuomo and CNN gets COVID, uh, he goes in his garage or his basement and he's isolated. So he isolates himself and, and the wife brings him food and knocks on the door and he gets... Now for the common Latino, Latina, especially immigrant in in California, they don't have that luxury. So a lot of times you have, let's say you have, you know, four people living in one bedroom apartment, or, or three people. And sometimes there's even no apartment, just a studio. So there's no way, there's nowhere to isolate. So when someone get gets COVID, everybody gets COVID because we don't have that luxury of space because of our wages are low on average or lower than, than white uh, Americans. So they're, they're lower. The educational level is lower as well. So our living conditions, uh, we, we live in more crowded uh, housing, whether where it's a home or, or an apartment, uh, owned or a an, uh, rental. And this is why this is one reason why Latinos, the COVID rate is higher than, than whites in, in California. So I'm right now, I'm just speaking about California. Okay, I'm sure it could be applied everywhere else, but in terms of California, it's because of the the higher de- the density in terms of the, the housing. And there, there's nowhere to to isolate. So we don't have that luxury. Uh, uh, you see a lot of affluent people where there, I mean, we don't live that far from Beverly Hills, Bel Air here in LA. And, I mean, you have people like two people living, and there's like 16 rooms, or or even even four rooms. They're just by themselves. I mean, that to me, that's like obscene, right? But the 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 housing situation and the the living conditions uh, exasperate the problem of COVID. It, so it brings it up, out more. Same thing with the, the fact that on average, Latinos and Latinas in, in general, and then immigrants in particular. Uh, in California, and also beyond, but let's just stick to California, they have a higher rate of working in the service industry, so they're, they're in contact with other people, so the likelihood of them giving COVID is higher than, than the average white American that, that probably has a, uh, an office job where they can Zoom. I'm not saying that you know, white people don't work in, in restaurants and services, they do, but in terms of proportion, in terms of rates, uh, so because of that, they're more exposed. So if you're working as a as a waitress or as a busboy, or if you're working washing cars or in cleaners, you're, you're in contact with a lot of people, or, or like my mom, you know, she was a domestic worker cleaning like different people's homes, the likelihood of you getting COVID is higher. Uh, so from the from the employment to the housing, uh, and the type of work that we do that we don't have. And I say we, in terms of a community, we don't have that luxury of, of Zooming like like, like I do, for example. Then that's when COVID kind of brings out these contradictions and it showcases the inequalities that exist in America. So that that's the problem that, that I see with, with, with COVID. And I don't think the government is doing a good job in, in handling that. Uh, like... Every single Latino and Latina, especially the immigrants that work in the informal economy, you don't hear about them. Like you hear about the restaurants closing, but before the restaurants closed, all the street vendors were shut down. But it's like they never existed. So this invisible labor force that that we all benefit from in terms of the tacos and the hot dogs with the bacon, they were the first ones hit by COVID, but nobody talks about them except me. Maybe, you know, both of you, so the three of us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're right. Hey, uh, we must pause here. Uh, uh, this is Cal Winslow, and I'm with uh, my co host, Loretta Rojas. We're your host today. Our program is talking about California. And in this uh, series, we're recognizing Hispanic Heritage Month. Today, we're talking uh, with uh, Alvaro Huerta, who's an associate professor of urban and regional planning at the State University Polytechnic in Pomona. This might be kind of changing subjects a bit, but I was struck by one of your titles. It's called uh, Reframing the Latino Immigration Debate. So I wanted to ask you, what is this about? And what, what is the debate? What, could, what are the sides? We hear every, we, sometimes we hear a lot, sometimes not about comprehensive immigration reform, uh, not so much right now. So what did you mean when you uh, entitled your, your piece reframing the immigration debate?
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. And, and the other questions uh, I really love your, your show and the, the questions that you all ask that that's the title of my first book and what what I was seeing during that time period. Was uh, in 2013 and, and before that I was observing and I'm sure it was just beyond my time observing it was that every single comment on, on Mainstream media and the politicians about immigrants was negative. Uh, and everything was very hostile. Uh, and I'll, even TV shows that I appeared on, I was being asked questions like, "Well, you know, we all believe in the wall, right? And we all believe in security." And I'm like, "No, I don't. I don't believe in walls. You know, I, don't, I think that we're all human beings. Uh, I see myself as a as a citizen of a, a citizen of the world. You know, I don't believe in borders, and the, I don't even believe in race. I mean, we're we're all human beings. All of us here in this Zoom, and everybody all." Everybody who's listening, we're all human beings first. And we all come from Africa, you know, so. That's me, right. You know, so there, I, see, I see myself more like as a human race, you know, and embrace that. And when it comes to immigrants, I don't even like to use the word immigrant anymore, because even though I use it, I just don't like it because it, since the beginning in, in this country, when it was founded on the backs of slaves and, and the killings of Native Americans, it's always been a dirty word. And the 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 Anglo's used it against the Germans, and then the the Anglo's and Germans later used it against the Italians and the Poles and the Irish. So even they, even the other Europeans were at one point considered ethnics and and they were all. It was always negative. It was always derogatory against uh, people of Jewish ancestry and the Italians and the Irish, and, uh, and and all these people were different. They 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 were Catholic. They they were non-Christian. You know? So they had too many kids they they spoke funny language and they dressed funny uh, they weren't anglos they weren't protestants you know they were they weren't wasps. so throughout american history i've always i've observed that when when the question of the immigrant comes has always been that about threat they bring violence and they bring drugs and even before trump this is something they bring disease and and so on and so forth uh, so i wanted to look at it differently and and, and and imagine it more that at the end of the day, you those that, that immigrate here, uh for the make for, for the Mexicans is different, is it? Because this was our land before. So I, I see more, more like we're like these homing birds that they come back to the motherland. But in general, for all the immigrants that come here, generally speaking, I mean there's some that are bad, but they come here because they, they want to live a life. Uh, without violence, without poverty, so they're escaping something. Uh, and if this is truly a, a land of opportunity, then, then we should welcome them. And, and the ideas that they bring are really the ideas that, that make this country, you know, the most advanced country in, in the world. Uh, I mean, I don't like Elon Musk's ideas because it's a little bit off, but this guy's a genius you know, and, and the, that type of immigrant ingenuity to come to this country as an immigrant and, and create the Tesla and the SpaceX and all that, that is what America needs. The more Americanized you get in this country, as far as I'm concerned, you, you lose that drive. Uh, the, the, and that drive that exists in the United States, it comes from immigrants because they, they're they self-driven and they're self-selected group. So you, 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 you're you talking about people that come here to take risks. You're talking about risk takers. So people that come to the United States take risks. And that's what you need. That's what we want. We want people who take risks, that are willing to, to create businesses, you know, to, to look at inventions and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, as a kid, as an American raised teenager, I was pretty much the laziest kid in, in the history of humanity. I mean, all I did was watch TV. <laughs> Uh, And and, at my age, at 13, 14, 15, you know, you bring us the same kid from Mexico or Venezuela or anywhere in the world to come to this country and they'll be working. You know, they'll be waking up at five in the morning, they'll be working. You know, for for my dad to just make me do errands is like I thought he was torturing me just to just to rake the leaves because I became assimilated and I became Americanized and I lost that. I lost what my parents had, what, what my mother had is that that entrepreneurial spirit. So when I say reframe, I see we have to see we have to see immigrants as like people on the move. And these are, they they come here not to cause violence, not to take away jobs from white people, not that white people wanna be farm workers in the first place or wanna clean homes like my mom did, but but they come here because they they wanna make better opportunities for themselves, and not only themselves, but their families as well.
0: Yeah, Alvaro, you know, so and when, they, when uh, they
2: send money, when they send money
0: home, I mean, who does that? Like, yeah, who comes and, to this and recently, and send money back home? yeah, I'm so, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, also recently we are seeing. I'm getting all passionate. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. You're fine. We see in the news now the huge uh, number of people from Haiti coming here. Yes, yes, yes. So I just wanted to remind you that also. I, I like to use the word sometimes displaced. I remember right. when I came to the States and I, I my first thought it was, I don't want to be an immigrant. I came when I was already, I was 32 years old and um, I had a study in the university and so on. So I, I really didn't want to have to do what you're describing, that people that come without any, perhaps um, a little bit of more formal education, which is considered uh, a better qualification, no, to get a job and all that. But I, I think a lot about immigration as people that are displaced from from their their places, and also that they are born in circumstances that uh, define uh, their opportunities, really, to move mm-hmm. around. So, so I imagine that um, you have been quite um, impressed also with what happened recently with uh, with the Haitians coming and being just uh, almost automatically sent back to Haiti, a country that has been historically deprived from infrastructure and democracy and et cetera.
2: That, that's a really sad situation. I, I I know that there was video of um, uh, immigration on, on horses, whipping them. Uh, and, and to me, like as, I, as a human being, I, I just can't watch that, you know, it's sad. It's like when Mr. George Floyd was was murdered. Uh, I, I saw like a clip of the video, but I just cannot see the whole nine minutes of it or, or you know the eight minutes or whatever it was. Um, and I see this more like there's no really difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. And a lot of times people think I'm a Democrat because I criticize Trump a lot and the Republicans, but you know I'm an independent and I, I criticize everybody equally. Uh, even the Mexican government when they were bombing the Zapatistas in 94 you know I criticized them as well. So the idea here is there's not that much difference in in terms of uh, the deportation or inhumane treatment of of, uh, immigrants from Latin America by the Democrats or the Republicans. I mean Obama even though he was the or he is you know one of the uh, best orders and, and the best in the in the history of the united states you know he deported 2.7 million immigrants uh, the majority of them being mexican so it doesn't matter if he loves his wife or he has two beautiful children and, and he's great the fact that we have to focus on the policy not not the individual uh, it was the fdR who put japanese in camps you know, a, a democrat he did he didn't put the germans in camps or the italians who were also fascists but Japanese, and he didn't bomb uh uh, Berlin, he bombed Hiroshima. So the problem that I see with Latin America, with the United States, is that the United States has historically been involved in in supporting these military juntas, including in Chile with with Pinochet, uh, the overthrow of uh, Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, and throughout Latin America, the United States has always been supporting dictators. And in the 80s, when I was a student activist against U.S. intervention in Central America, the United States, they were supporting these military regimes that were killing people, in Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua. So these same people that flee because of U.S. involvement, just like, it, like we see people fled Vietnam because of U.S. involvement. So now they're coming here to this country And then all of a sudden we're blaming them. Now we're we're victimizing them because they're fleeing poverty and violence that the United States was directly involved in. Uh, So it's this contradiction, this hypocrisy that that I focus on when when I write my my social commentaries is that on the one hand, the United States will uh, argue, uh, let's say against Mexico, that the the Mexicans with the the cartels and the drugs uh, are a problem, they're a threat. I'm against the cartels. I'm against the Mexican government that is corrupt. But at the same time, you need to take responsibility to the fact that the arms that the Mexican cartels, the the, the arms that they use, are from the United States. So they they purchase the arms illegally through the United States. So they, they the United States were, I'm not going to say weak, oui because I'm not part of the government. But the United States produces more arms than in any other country in the world, you know, probably up there totally. with Israel. You
1: know. Totally, totally, totally. So the thing is that, so
2: there's that responsibility between that. And then the, on the other thing, you know, because I studied economics too, at Berkeley, there's a supply and demand. If America didn't have so many addicted, uh, so many Americans who were addicted to drugs, and there's family members of mine too, so I'm not judging them, then there wouldn't be a big supply of drugs, right? So that is the demand that's supplying the, the that is driving the supply. So America has a big problem with, with, with addiction, drug addiction. So instead of looking at itself and seeing that we have a problem and admitting that, it's easy to blame the Mexicans or the Afghans because that's where you know, heroin or opiates you know, come from. So it's, it's easier to, to blame someone else instead of blaming yourself. So, when it comes to the drugs, the United States is complicit in that because the, the drugs coming in from Colombia, from Mexico, from other places in Latin America, because they're feeding a, a problem that the Americans have. And the drugs and the gang and, 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 and the, the guns that, that the Americans are killing themselves with, and my, my people, my state of Michoacán, where there's the big problem with that, where my parents come from those are those are Uzis and those are other that come from the United States and and other countries as well not just the United States. Uh, So there has to be that responsibility uh, and it's easy to say "Oh, these poor Haitians are coming and they're a threat and it's easy for the Biden administration to just deport them without looking at what is the role of the United States that that created those conditions to begin with that is forcing people to flee. Uh, So I, I blame the United States and their, their their role in terms of, of uh, their policies against Latin America for 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 a lot of this chaos. Uh, I mean, we see like in Central America. This is the last point, for in that, it, like the violence that exists with the MS thirteen, right, with the Mara Salvatrucha. Uh, the Mara Salvatrucha was created in the United States. You know, the, the gang was created in MacArthur Park in, in, in L.A and it was when they were deported from mal deported from LA back to central america so they first came because they were war they were children of the war you know that they, they fled in the 80s they became gang members in our cities in the inner cities and then they returned to their their countries and then now they spread all over uh, central america where where they're a menace they're not a menace here because they're, they're just a gang they're, they're, they don't have nuclear weapons or anything like that they're, so not blow them out of proportion they're not even al-qaeda level but they're a product of they're american made
1: can i ask you uh one thing um and you can defer if you if you choose to if you could just uh think freely mm-hmm. what would you think about the idea of open borders, the idea open borders, which drives so many uh, Anglo-Americans into hysteria. Right. Um, what, what is it about um, open borders that does that? And why uh, Why would open borders be such a terrible thing?
2: Well, that's a great question. I, I'm open to most questions. Uh, one time I was, I was with the right winger like uh, Uncle Tom, that was asking me questions out of nowhere, <laughs> like really, like trying to get me to say something that uh, I forget his name Peterson. I forget the, the guy's name. He uh,
0: wanted to know why you have an accent over your A? Yeah, it was, yeah,
2: accent, yeah, it was. He was asking weird questions. it was like, but he was trying to get me to to get me to to admit to something that that uh, typically I won't talk about. Uh, I think it has to do with this narrative where there's been a fear in dividing us, like black, white, white, brown, and even within black and brown communities, there's this fear of dividing people. Uh, it's, it's like this menace is like the barbarians are, these brown barbarians are at the gate. And so only by having the gate are we protecting ourselves from them. Any white American and when I say white, you know, my mother was white, my, my brother was white, not in terms of like European descent. Actually, probably my grandfather was from Spain because he, he had green eyes, he was light-skinned. But any person who's white, and for me, if I, if I go to Chiapas or Oaxaca with indigenous, they see me as white. So, so this whole thing about being white or brown, is it's all relative. Right? Uh, but any American, and I've been to Mexico numerous times, and when I see, you know, white Americans and Canadians when they go to Mexico in particular, because I'm not too familiar with too many other countries in terms of traveling, they, they're they gonna find that there's the most gracious, most beautiful people in the world, you know? And the poor, the when you go to the poorer vi- villages, they're even more generous. You go to anyhow, in Latin America, not the elite, because it's different with the elite, because they they act more, they have, like, it's a class issue. If they have one chicken, if they only have one chicken, they'll give it to you. And they don't even ask you, tienes hambre, they they just feed you. You know, so the, the, whenever I've traveled Mexico, you're you're eating, you're eating outside, and and provecho, like, or buenos dias. In the United States, you don't have any of that. Like, if somebody says good morning, you're like, you know, What do you want? You know, you think like they're going to rob you or something. Like you get all stabbed. You're like, you you go for your wallet or something. But what I found is that 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 narrative of of the brown invasion of these people coming to take our jobs, you know, rape our women and and all that. Same thing that that was said in terms of like when an African-American in the 50s was staring at a white girl, right? They, They would kill. They were killed or jailed or beaten up or hung. It, it, it's all this fear that 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 that's fed in the minds of white Americans to 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 think that these, these brown people are are out to get them, you know, to, to cause violence or to harm them somehow. Uh, but when those Americans that are not racist, that go to Haiti, that go to Mexico, that go to the Caribbean, they travel and they love culture, like my hero Anthony Bourdain, and they go and they, they taste other foods. They they realize it's like at the end they were all human beings and, and and, and they enjoy, they enjoy that, right? that, that we're not eating at McDonald's or this fast food culture of ours, right? That, that we're, we're, we're doing that. So once you start to to, to go outside of that bubble and to, to see and, and getting, to be in contact with people, then you realize it's like, it, they're not a threat. Uh, it's the same for us that, like I grew up with some black people or, or black friends. It, it, there weren't a, a lot, but there were some so I was never, I was always cool, you know, because we're, we're black, brown, it wasn't a problem. But I could see that growing up, if if you don't have black friends, or if you never met a black person and, and growing up, all you saw on TV was, you know, like black people killing each other or, or killing others or being in gangs or all this negative, like uh, dark image of them. I could see how, whether you're racist or not, consciously or unconsciously, you're going you're gonna to be afraid, right? But but once you start to break that segregation and we, we're in contact with each other, or we meet each other from different nationalities, different colors, all, all of that all of that breaks down. Uh, but but going back to your question, I see it more as that this this false narrative that that has been um, that has been ingrained in the American psychic that even brown people have have also uh, internalized. In other words, you have some people that are Mexican or Mexican-American that support Trump or, or are working for ICE uh, or Border Patrol, you know, things of that nature. So they, they themselves have internalized that racism. Uh, at the end of the day, when it comes to borders, and I, I, I don't believe in borders. I, if anything, if you want to look at it more like on a very policy level, you know, I think like this idea of the American, of the European Union would be something good to implement. Uh, where where they have you know countries from the continent that 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 bring down these barriers so there's trade there's commerce people travel more easily people go back and forth more easily there is regulation so it's not like there's chaos or anything like that uh, so if the europeans can do it i don't know why we can't do it in, in latin america or in the americas like bolivar said you know we're all americans
0: thank you alvaro and if you just uh If you just have joined us, you are listening to Talking About California. I'm Loreto Rojas and I'm here with my co-host Carl Winslow. And you are in listening KCYX Mendocino Community, listener supported radio. And we are having this very interesting conversation with Alvaro Huerta. He's a professor, he's an associate associate professor in urban and region planning and, and ethnic and women's studies at California State Polytechnic University. So, Alvaro, one of the things that I was, um, I, I think that is, is being discussed more and more these days, um, it has to do with the importance of telling our stories. I think um, they are famous uh, phrases. I think Mark Twain said that uh, if you wanna cure racism, go and travel, go to other places. Yeah, yeah. And uh, many of us uh, migrants, immigrants or displaced people, uh, sometimes I am astonished of the way people talk to me and I need to remind them that I have left my home country to come here, you know, because they they kind of belittle you, you know, try to kind of put you in some, some kind of place. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I have traveled from one end to America to the other. So we gain this experience and we are somehow more open to the experiences. Uh, and to uh, overcome ob- obstacles and everything you have just described about Latinos. So, but I wanted to ask you to talk about this, about how important for us to break this um, this circle of uh, stigma and uh, stereotypes by telling our stories. What, what's the merit of that? Because I know you tell your story and how important is that to, to change our society, our community, to change policies? What is the value of this?
2: I think it's very important. I mean, that for Native Americans, this is one way that they teach their young people. Uh, and they, they passed on their generations by, by storytelling. Uh, and this is how I started actually telling, writing, because I also write short stories. Um, I learned from like the, the great Latin American writers. Like again, they, you know, Borges and Vargas Llosa. And I would tell the same stories that I would tell. And some of those stories, they're, they're funny or they're kind of tragic, but I would just tell them over and over to other people. And then I realized, oh, I'm going to write it down, you know. And then, so I started writing it down and then I started sharing uh, and even telling a story, like when I met my wife at, at UCLA and she kept saying no. And and you try to tell stories that are universal because you know, people were like oh you know like they're not Mexican but oh that happened to me too or oh yeah so part of part of telling stories is you, you look for that universal aspect of it that that brings us together uh, or my brother Salomon Huerta is a, is a brilliant painter like he'll tell a story he'll, he told a story and he put it on Facebook oh, you know my father never said I love you you know which he didn't you know he was like those old school guys that never said I loved you, never gave you a hug, or, you know, give you this cheap Mexican hug. You know, like, uh, like, And when he said that, you had white, brown, black, Asian like, comment. Oh, that happened to me too. And, you know, like all this, like, it was like a therapy session. So by him telling his story, but he wasn't saying, he was saying it in a funny way, but it, by, he touched a nerve. And, and so it kind of like other, it like, all of a sudden, now you have all these other people, this community of people that, that come together around that. Uh, you know, same thing like with people that they grew up without a father. I I mean, I grew up without, I grew up with a father. He wasn't the best father. In terms of being involved, but he wasn't mean to me. You know, but he wasn't like involved. But I see, like I I've met different people that grew up without a father, and they tell the same story. It's like you can hear the same like a pattern, like of them feeling like there's something missing. And then, so for me, I feel bad, you know, and I feel like some like empath, empathize for them and I, I don't want them to feel that way. So I try to help them or be there for them. So I think for us, I, I look at it more like, a, how can we tell our stories like at a, a human level? And then at the same time, how can we tell stories that, that it might not bring us together? Like, So this, it's okay if we don't have that in common but at least we understand, you know, where people are coming from, you know? So like, I'm not an immigrant, but I grew up, I have an immigrant experience because I came to this country when I was four and I didn't speak the language. Now that's different than coming when you're 13 or you're 20 or 30, it's, it's different, but it's, it's that experience that kind of unites us. So I have sympathy for that. So when I, when I see that, that my students, um, are struggling with the English language whether they're Chinese or, or Mexican or whatever I, I feel bad because I said okay I was there I was there too so I'm going to have more compassion or I'm going to be more understanding or, uh, or like if I don't have that experience you know I'm a male I'm not a female but I do have four sisters and I could be I see that they have a different story that I, I cannot connect with so like I don't know how I don't know how it feels to go to a, a parking lot that is empty in the dark, because I'm not not—I don't—I'm afraid. But if I was a woman, I would be afraid because of the sexual predators that are out there. So we have different stories and by someone telling their story, then me as an urban planner, I can see, okay, you know, that we we have to do something about that. Because that goes beyond me, that it doesn't benefit me what I wanna implement it goes beyond, like, by listening to other people's stories, we can we can do something to make sure that it's a safe environment for people that are not like us. So it's about having sympathy, but also having empathy, too. And overall, you know, we don't have that much time, but because of the way I grew up and the way I lived, I've always used humor as a way, like a coping mechanism. Uh, even against racism or, or people that have uh, abused me over my years <laughs> and uh, I've always to survive use humor. And I've I found that also as, as a way of telling stories and using humor to to, to kind of like put our, our defenses down and, and to disarm people.
0: Uh, right, and also I think the merit is that when we tell our stories, other people want to tell their stories too. I mean, what yes, you were yes. saying about uh, Finding common denominators, regardless of the story, somehow.
2: Right, definitely, and that that's that is beautiful, right? So, because we hear different people's story, and we we have the different, we appreciate that more because we don't know what it is. If somebody grows up a Muslim and in, in another country, we we don't know that. We just know what Hollywood is telling us how, how Muslims grow up in, in the Middle East, but by by them telling the stories, we. That that stereotype or negative portrayal is is broken down, but we have to be open to that.
1: Oh, I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. I, I wish I wish we we weren't. I hope hopefully we can have you uh, back again. Um, and I hope it won't be uh, you know maybe it'll be before another year is out. Uh, I think we'll be anxious to hear what your uh, work in Cambridge was all about and how that went. It's it's just always really nice to talk to um, professor. Oh, so, you, Professor. Uh, so,
2: likewise, next time we should have it with a tequila or something, sure. <laughs> have, a, have a drinking. Oh, we have two Zooms, one sober and one That's one a now. good
1: idea. That's terrific.
2: You have to come in, to
0: Mendocino and have some yes. of some, that Zim
2: Zinfandel,
0: that is so famous, and Pino. You're in wine country, so I really want to... The next session we have
2: has to be in person because of the (laughs) This whole pandemic thing is under control.
1: You know, it's a long way in California. It's a big state, but uh, you certainly would be uh, uh, found to be welcomed here. And uh, we'd show you the town. (laughs) 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 Anyway... (laughs) Anyway, this has been uh, talking about California and our guest has been Ofero Huerta, uh, who's a professor in urban and region planning and ethnic and women's studies at Cal State Polytechnic University. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. This is KZYX Mendocino County Community Radio. We'll be back next week with another program in our series for Hispanic Heritage. Until then, thank you again, and thanks listeners for listening, and good afternoon to everyone.
0: Goodbye, yeah. muchas gracias. Like, like we say, in East LA, muchas gracias. Okay.